Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'm happy to be joined by New Orleans poet, translator, and educator Elizabeth Gross. Her work has appeared in Tenderloin, Fairytale Review, and she holds an MFA in poetry from Hunter College. Her latest book is Dear Escape Artist, a collaboration with artist Sarah White that came out in 2016 via Antenna's publishing project. How are you doing today, Elizabeth? Good, thanks. Well, it's great to see you here in this new year. Uh, how's 2018 treating you so far? It's good. It feels like it hasn't quite started yet because my teaching semester starts tomorrow. But uh, it's it's good to be doing things again after the cold winter break. Yes, of course, the cold here in New Orleans for us. Um, well, tell me this. I normally end my interviews with this question, but I'm interested, being the new year, to hear what you've been kind of honing in on as far as your, your own reading. Yeah, I've just finally gotten a copy of the new Emily Wilson translation of Homer's Odyssey. Oh, wow. And I'm really excited about that. It's gotten a lot of attention, uh, which is very unusual for a new translation of a book that's thousands of years old, uh, in part because she's the first woman to translate the Odyssey into English. And so far, I've just I've just read the first book, but it's beautiful. Okay. Well, what are some of the differences that you're noticing in this translation versus the, the Fagels or the more uh, well-known translations so far? Yeah. So I've been reading the Emily Wilson with my Fagels and my Fitzgerald close by, attending to these differences. And uh, like I said, I've only read the first book, but so far, all of the gendered power dynamics are completely changed. Okay. And also, there's there's a beautiful clarity to the language that she uses. So I'm really excited to dive deeper to what she's doing. Yeah, I can imagine that. What initially got you interested in kind of the art of translation and, you know, veering through different translations? I became a classics major at the very last minute as an undergrad. I took intro Greek my junior year and then was translating Euripides, which no one should try to do that <laughs> soon or maybe ever by the end of that year. It was completely insane. And then I never I never gave it up, really? basically. I fell in love with the sounds of the words in Greek, actually. And yeah, it's even more backwards than just jumping from intro to translating because I first took a class about the sound of Greek, where I was being trained to perform for the small audiences that exist for such a thing, uh, bits of Greek text without actually studying what the words meant. And then, yeah, then I was hooked. Yeah, interesting. What, in your opinion, is the most important part of a good translation? I think it has to be a new, authentic expression of something the translator wants to say Yeah. at this point when we're talking about classics okay, that have been translated many, many times. Um, yeah, there's certainly a devotion to the what the Greek is saying that's part of that, but I think it's always very personal. Um, and I think that's, that's especially true of someone like me who uh, didn't have a lot of technical training just jumped right into making things mine rather than spending years of studying the grammar. Um, and so I, my skill set is irresponsible. Yeah. My style is irresponsible. But also that's what I enjoy reading. I would not call Emily Wilson irresponsible. Yeah. And, um, but what I admire about her work now is that I, I see the same kind of urge to say something new with this text. 
No, I can see that. And how does that, I mean, I mean translators work uh, kind of, I feel, runs in line with, with poetry and the poet's job and, you know, how framing things and positioning context in your own current context as well as the context from where that writing's coming from. Um, how has, you know, working in translation and kind of seeing the nitty gritty of that assisted your poetry, if it has at all? Mostly what I call translation is is also still my poetry. Yeah. Um, it's it's always a, a, I'm reaching for someplace in between what I want to say anyway and, and what's available to me through the text. And so the text offers a new window into uh, what I'm thinking about anyway. But I would say I'm working from source text material in a lot of my work beyond uh, just what I translate from ancient Greek. Yeah. I've been working in erasure, uh, on, a, on a particular project for years and be, for dabbling for exercises for years before that, but currently at work on erasure of the entirety of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. So you could call that an English to English translation, Yeah. but there again, I'm in, engaging with the text as a set of language and a set of ideas that exist before what I'm doing to it. Yeah. And um, so the work that I'm creating is a combination of the manipulation of Shakespeare's text and uh, the ways that I want to speak back to Shakespeare's text. Okay. Why the uh, Merchant of Venice in particular? I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. It started with an argument with a friend. Yeah. <laughs> is, <laughs> that made me realize that I had a problem with the text, which I, I mean... I'd read it in college and I'd read it in grad school and anti-Semitism is always part of the conversation around the Merchant of Venice. But every academic context where I've discussed that work in the past, it it's kind of brushed it aside as the kind of issue that somebody who wants to start trouble just in order to have something new to say would say about the Merchant of Venice. Of course, pointing out anti-Semitism is in the Merchant of Venice is not new. Also, it's like it's obviously there. I can't believe that people are arguing about it at yeah. all. It's it's uh, it's crazy to me. And um, I think the problem is uh, this idea that if the Merchant of Venice is an anti-Semitic text, then we can't touch it. We can't talk about it. We can't learn anything else from it yeah. anymore. And, and that's not that's not how I feel about it. But uh, basically, a friend of mine invited me to a Merchant of Venice reading party. Um, which she had accidentally scheduled on um, Yom Kippur, or more precisely, Kol Nidre, the holiest night of the year, the eve of Yom Kippur. And there was a ham, and it just, it was not okay yeah. that that was happening. And it didn't happen. My friend did not do it on purpose at all. Yeah. It was, it was uh, a remarkable set of coincidences. But I learned something from my own reaction to that social difficulty that I had some rage to investigate yeah. with The Merchant of Venice and and that I wanted to tear it up. So yeah. Erasure was my starting point from that. And the project has changed shape over the years since then. That's really interesting and, and incredibly useful. And it kind of brings to a larger debate, which we were having in academic circles today about how to approach, you know, problematic text. And should we uh, go along with this this idea of like tearing it up or how do we investigate these in a productive manner while also identifying and not taking away their context? That, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, well, I think you can tear it up and still have it. And I don't know why that's so hard to imagine. But erasure opens a particular literal process by which to do that um, if you're engaged with experimental poetry. You just cross out the words. Just cross out the words, (laughs) and then it's still there. It's been through thinking about texts that are either problematic, like The Merchant of Venice, or desperately needed in this moment. So either because something needs to be taken down or because something needs to be lifted up, Mm -hmm. it's a way for me to bring those voices into the conversation in the present moment. Okay, interesting. Um, to kind of pivot to a little bit, I'd love to talk about uh, your your book here, Dear Escape Artist. Okay. Where did this, uh, it's, it's a set of letters to this escape artist, uh, to kind of let our listeners know that. Uh, where did that framework come from, and where did the idea of the quote-unquote escape artist come from? I remember when it happened. I don't know where the escape artist came from. Yeah. Uh, really, it's not the first conceptual project for me where I'm addressing a concept yeah. um, directly and, and, and kind of giving a concept, not a presence, but an absence uh, because the concept does not write me back. Yeah. But the escape artist came onto the page very quickly mm-hmm. um, from when it started, which makes it different <laughs> than other <laughs> other projects. And it was it was really fun. I, I did a little bit of research into uh, different kinds of escape artistry and, like, you know, Harry Houdini stuff. But mostly it just took off. On its own? On its own. And kind of led um, you? Okay. Yeah. Just once I started talking to it, I... I couldn't stop. I could see that. And if, if you read the book, it does seem like to have this kind of like frenetic kind of like, I won't say back and forth energy because like you said, you're addressing this, this absence of something, uh, but it, it moves really fast. And I, and I really love how you're able to do so much in there. And then the the other texture to the book is Sarah White's um, ink drawings in there. And tell me, tell me a little bit about that collaboration effort. Yeah. So uh, that's the other thing. And that's part of Part of the reason why the poems happened so quickly was I submitted Dear Escape Artist as a proposal, as a work in progress to Antenna for their series that um, highlights collaborations between writers and visual artists. And so I, I wasn't really expecting it to happen and certainly not on the timeline that then uh, was suggested to me after they accepted the work. I think I had about six poems. Yeah. And the book is 18 of these. And basically, it was written in that summer between uh, when they accepted the work in progress and when the book came out. So working with Sarah was amazing, first of all, because Sarah is a dear friend of mine. And uh, we've been collaborating on and off for the 10 years of our friendship. And also, she just moved back to New Orleans that summer. So it was really good timing for that. But also I think of it as a true collaboration because Sarah affected the poems and my my poems affected the ink drawings in the moment. Meaning we were sending these things back and forth as we were making them or sometimes sitting in in a living room with them all laid out in front of us and making decisions together about how how the work spoke to each other. It wasn't 
we weren't in our separate corners working on our independent projects and then okay. putting it together um, to make a book. Really everything about it was decided together. And we letterpress printed the covers together also. And the two of us hands sewed the 200 copies. I just finished yeah. the last sewing, <laughs> the last of the first edition of 200. Wow. <sighs> Feels good? Got yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels good. And I guess um, it seems like there can be more later. Yeah. Um, maybe not letterpress, maybe not handstone. <laughs> but uh, that the, the there will be other ways to get one's hands on Dear Escape Artists okay. from Antenna. Um, I'd love if you could share a poem from that, if you don't mind. They're very much in conversation with each other, so I'll read a couple of short ones. Dear Escape Artists, I was watching underwater for your last big thing. Saw you pick the lock with the same frayed rope they tied you up with. Was there a they, or do you do it to yourself? I am always imagining a they. Perhaps this is something we have in common. I wish we could talk it over, high up on a ledge, feet dangling just to pretend we're not, holding on for dear life. Dear escape artist, my research tells me there are at least three ways to die in an escape or die performance. Drowning, suffocation, falling, and occasionally electrocution. But this was something else. Despair? The word calls up a fainting couch. The word is weak. There are times the mind invents a rescue helicopter and its ladder flinging out like a tongue just to get anywhere else. Dear escape artist, do you ever think about the body itself as the bind? Thanks so much for sharing those. Um, I love the idea, especially in that, that opening poem right there, drawing the listener or the reader into the idea of, is there a they, about that perf performative aspect of, of the book, and that also very like personal connection there, because you're addressing one person, but it's always being treated as if there is an audience there with you. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, and just how these ideas of, of memory and, and grief and despair, in a way, kind of wind their way through the book. Yeah, I think the speaker is constantly trying to figure out whether or not there's an audience. Yeah. And that's part of the thought experiment for her is she feels trapped. So as a way of engaging with her own traps, she is pretending that it's a performance and seeing what comes of that and seeing if she can find a way out, if she is performing a way out. Uh, which I think kind of works for her. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> which is which is great. Um, to kind of kind of pivot a little bit, you got to spend a little bit of time in Greece last year, um, assisting during the refugee crisis. Yes, I spent about three months in Greece and signed up to volunteer as a teacher in a refugee camp outside of Thessaloniki for two months. Um, but then the military shut down the camp about four weeks into my volunteer stint, um, which was really interesting to witness. Yeah. And, um, and also all of the, um, all of the families, uh, were, were placed in housing and were actually in a better situation after. So That's good, definitely man. not a disaster there. Um, but it afforded me this unexpected opportunity to travel around Greece and the Balkans and gather a lot more information about what was happening and talk to people and get to know about other projects. Um, as well. How was that for you? 
because, uh, you know, over here, it's very easy to just scroll through a Facebook page or social media page and see an article about something or photos and just scroll past it. But there it's, it's very visceral. It's all around you and you're in this entirely different context. How was it both being there and then stepping back after those three months and, and getting away from it? In some ways, I feel like I'm still coming back. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I came back in August, actually, and I guess it's January, but it's very difficult to fit my experiences there and what I learned about there into my life here. It's yeah, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense that it, that that what's happening is happening in uh, with the refugee crisis in Greece and in so many places right now. Part of how I'm making sense of it now is th is that that experience is coming into my work, actually specifically into the work of Mr. Chance, which is, I think, one of the weirdest conceptual leaps I have ever attempted. Yeah. And it's I'm, I'm not sure how it will go. But uh, right now, the issues in, of power that are in, in play in my erasure of the Merchant of Venice are kind of superimposed over the information that I gathered in and around Thessaloniki okay. and uh, refugee stories that I picked up along the way, and particularly any moment where my Jewish identity came up as a, a volunteer working with refugees, mostly from Syria, mm -hmm. in Greece. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about Mr. Chance than we will before the end of the interview, but um, while you were there, you were, were teaching, and I, I saw you do a reading in which you... I performed some poems from a book from one of your, your students that you were working with. Yes. My student, Yazan, uh, who was 11 uh, last summer and was the only student, really, who came to school regularly during Ramadan, began this project. Uh, it actually started, did you ever see the Twitter? There was a few years ago now, there was a Twitter account, uh, Evgenia First on Mars. Uh-uh, no. And uh, somebody brilliant created a persona, unless you want to believe that it's true. I don't want to take that away from <laughs> anybody out there. My understanding is that someone, a real person on Earth, created a persona of Evgenia first on Mars and tweeted from Mars in broken but beautiful English. Yeah. And I showed that to my student in part to encourage him to tell a story in whatever kind of English was available. And I actually, I've used, I've used this in teaching ESL in other contexts as well. And he decided that he wanted to write a book about Pluto as a result of our discussion about Evgenia. And uh, he wrote the whole book. I wrote it down physically, um, but he dictated it to me. And we made decisions together about revising it and got some pictures from the NASA website about pictures of Pluto and uh, put it together into an edition of seven copies. That was Those were the resources that we had mm -hmm. at the camp. We could print seven copies. So he has five and I took one and the other teacher took one as well. Um, and uh, yeah, we hand sewed them. And uh, that ended up coming together in what turned out to be the last week of school. Oh, wow. We didn't know if we were going to have class again. And uh, I tried my best to help Yuzan understand what a big deal it was to write a book as an 11-year-old. Yeah. 
and publish it and be able to distribute it. And um, it became it it became something he could give to people as a goodbye present as well as everybody was leaving the camp. So one of one of the things that I'm proudest of in my teaching experiences in general, I yeah. think teaching after teaching for 10 years, it was just an incredible opportunity to hear from Izan. Yeah, I love that. And I'd love if you could share a couple from that, that book as well. There are only three pages in this book. Yeah. So I think I should read them all. Sure, please, by all means. <laughs> June 20th, 2017. Dear people on Earth, we have no people on Pluto. We have no water. The planet is like robot because it is very cold and there is no food. Everything is white here. We can see stars but no planets because the planets are very far away. We have no clocks here. We have only five or six minutes of sunlight and the rest is night, so we sleep all the time. I'm very happy on Pluto because I sleep all the time and because it is very beautiful. All of Pluto is white. We don't have any laptops here or phones. Your friend is on. June 21st, 2017. Dear people on Earth, Pluto is like an egg. Pluto has water and mountains. The sun is almost six billion kilometers away. Pluto sees the sun. Pluto has very big moons, to the left and to the right. I can see Earth from Pluto, and it looks like water. Satellites go to Pluto. It takes one month to get there. There are no clouds or rain on Pluto. You don't have storms or snow, just sun. Pluto is 150 million kilometers from Earth. The cold is between negative 233 and negative 223 degrees Celsius. There are no trees or houses or supermarkets. There is no electricity or cars. Because we don't have trees, we don't have oxygen. On Pluto, we don't have school. We don't have teachers. We don't have paper and we don't have math. No English, no Arabic, no German, no Spanish, no Greek. I like it here because it's just me. No football or tennis or volleyball or basketball, just running. I like to run in the mountains of Pluto where there are no people. Your friend, Yazan. June 22nd, 2017. Dear people on Earth, I want a laptop on Pluto and electricity. There are no books or pencils or chairs or tables or windows or doors. The only lights are the moons. When I go back to Earth, I'll look at all the planets. My spaceship is like an airplane. I like it because there are no lions or bears or dinosaurs or horses. I don't have everything here. I don't have a heater, but I don't want one. I have a plan. It's warm in my spaceship. I want two people to visit me while I'm on Pluto, but no more than two. My two friends, your friend, Yazan. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, that's really kind of amazing you got to work on that and, and that, that that time allowed. And you, you know, as you said, that it, it ended very shortly after you got that to him. And uh, that's really kind of a lovely thing that you were able to do. Yeah, now one of my most precious possessions. I can imagine. Um, so moving moving on to to Mr. Chance and the project, how far along are you on in this this new new work? Well, the erasure itself has been going on for years, and well, I finished it at the end of 2015. I think I yeah. The first draft of the erasure of The Merchant of Venice was uh, August to December of 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did some, I made some attempts to revise it 
and make it into something comprehensible that might mean something to anybody else. And was really struggling with that and put it away for a while. And so in when I was in Greece, it was something clicked. It was during what they call protection training, mm-hmm. where the psychologist gives you information that you need in order to keep yourself safe uh, psychologically. Uh, that concept is a little bit problematic in the, in, in the light of what's happening. Um, but as safe as possible, your, yourself and, more importantly, the residents. Um, so uh, we, we had these trainings to kind of orient uh, new volunteers. And some of the information that I learned there was about uh, the difficult journeys that the residents had taken to get to that place. The psychologist... Uh, at this camp really took us through an entire process, only starting after the war, just the journey. So nothing about the wars that people are running from, but just the journey and and every danger that can happen that they've already passed Mm -hmm. before being stuck for years in Greece, sometimes in terrible conditions. In, In this place, not so terrible. And something stuck out to me about the risk of organ trafficking that made a connection back to Shylock's demand for a pound of flesh. Mm. And that was the first connection. And then I learned a little bit more about the history of the city of Thessaloniki, which has a very unique place in Jewish history. And so those those things kept coming up as connections between the experience that I was having, between the experiences that I was hearing about from the refugees, between my own experience traveling in Greece and across the Balkans, mm-hmm. and with the concerns of the play and my problems with the play. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I love that that kind of came together to a head because of all those things. Interesting. Um, I'd love if you could read some of the works from that, if you, if you don't mind. I will try. Yes. (laughs) Okay, here are some bits from the first few pages of uh, the most recent version of Mr. Chance. And some of this I wrote yesterday. Just saying. (laughs) Act one, scene one, a street. I know why I am sad. You say I caught it. Born to want sadness. To know our mind tossing on the ocean, on the flood. Believe me, my hopes abroad still know the wind of doubt. Should I go to stone and not think straight of anger? Sad to think upon, Mr. Chance. I hold the world a stage where every man must play a part, and mine a sad one, that I should questionless be where money is. Act One, Scene Two, A Room. My little body is too much. But seriously, who is Mr. Chance? A set of questions about power, the engine of history, an erasure of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, several stories about place and displacement. If the play had a conscience, if the play had a fever dream, a pound of flesh cut off nearest to the heart to settle an old debt. Act one, scene three, nice public place. 3,000, well, three months for three months, well, I shall be bound, shall be bound, well, 3,000 cats for three months bound to that. No, 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 my meaning is to have you understand me. Land rats and water rats, pirates, waters, wind, and rocks. 
Man is notwithstanding sufficient. 3,000 ducks. May I speak? I buy you. I buy you, sell you, walk you, follow you. I hate that low simplicity, the rat. Shylock, do you hear? I present my memory. What of that? A wealthy Hebrew you desire? Your worship was in our mouths, 3,000 moths. Mark this witness like a heart outside falsehood. 3,000 cats, three months from 12. Then let me see the rat. Well, Shylock, shall we hold you? You call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog. You say Shylock, you say so. You void my beard and foot a stranger threshold. You spit on Wednesday, such a day, when friendship for a barren metal. I would be friends with you and love-stained. This kindness, this kindness in such a place, in the condition, in your flesh cut off and taken, in what part of your body pleaseth me. I say there is much kindness in the Jew. You dwell in my necessity, expect returns for my love. I pray for my house, left in fear. He grows a villain's mind. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that's, so you're really progressing along with that, which is really great. I'm, I'm excited to see more of that and hear more of that. So, Thanks. It is very strange. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. It's, it's now uh, four levels of text now that are happening. Three levels of found text. There are erasures from Merchant of Venice that exist as short, fragmentary lyrics. There are erasures from Merchant of Venice that function as scenes with multiple voices that are new voices, not the characters in the play. Yeah. There is found text that's coming in from my notebooks and photographs of my travels. So like the protection training notes. Mm-hmm. And then there are new poems of mine in my voice, in my experience, that are speaking back to all of those other voices. Oh, wow. um, and I just figured that out yesterday, but that's what's <laughs> happening now. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a monster of a project, but that's a lot I'm of juggling. finding my way slowly. Yes. Actually, actually suddenly quickly. Yeah, I think that the, the revelations of like, oh, this is where I am now. This is what we're going to work with. I, I Good that you're finding that, that that's difficult to kind of like get that there and then also, you know, maneuver through that now. So uh, interesting. Um, I'm excited to see that in its full form. Um, Thank you. So, Elizabeth, do you have any events coming up that you want to share with us? Yes. I'm reading Thursday, January 25th with Brad Richard at the Dogfish Reading Series. The Dogfish Reading Series is at 2448 North Villery Street. And that's at uh, 7 p.m., I believe? 7 p.m. Okay, well, fantastic. And I'm thrilled to be reading with Brad Richard, who's a dear friend and a former uh, teacher of mine. Oh, wow. Well, Elizabeth, this has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I was just speaking with Elizabeth Gross, poet, transcriber, and educator. Her first book, Dear Escape Artist, is out now from Antenna's Room 220 Press. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of WRBH's interview programs can be found on our SoundCloud page, which is www.soundcloud.com slash WRBHreadingradio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.